Welcome to the SIFMA podcast. I'm Ken Benson, President and CEO of SIFMA. Our team at SIFMA continues to closely monitor the global COVID-19 pandemic and its effect on the industry and the markets. In just a few short weeks, we have seen severe shocks to the economy and the capital markets. The Federal Reserve, the Department of the Treasury, and Congress have undertaken unprecedented actions to buy financial assets, unclog the pipes of our financial system, and increase its capacity. Congress has also taken swift action, passing three phases of stimulus packages as, as of the time of this discussion. With us today are Rob Toomey, head of our capital markets practice, and Corey Stephenson, head of Prudential Capital and Liquidity Policy. They're here to give an overview of the Fed and Treasury's actions so far, as well as those by the Congress and the market's response and what might be ahead. Uh, Rob and Corey, thank you all for joining us. Rob, let's start off with you. Uh, when did we start to see pressures in the market uh, begin to manifest? I'm going to take a bit of a historical approach to this and just to, to illustrate how fast moving this is and how fast moving and how quickly it happened and impacted the markets. Obviously, the, the impact of the, the virus on markets. I'm going to take us back probably about three and a half to four weeks ago, maybe roughly a month ago. And you started to see as people and investors started to take down the information on the spread of the virus internationally. And as it started to move into the US, investors and markets started to show some stresses. And I think some of those stresses started to show up first in the repo market and the treasury repo market. And you started to see there were a couple days in, I guess, the second week of March or so, where the SOFA, which is a rate that follows the repo market, started to spike outside of the Fed funds range, which is very rare for that and indicated a little stress in that market. Then as you moved forward, the treasury market, which is the deepest and most liquid market in the world, started to show some stresses and particularly some illiquidity stresses in the longer dated securities, the 10-year, the 30-year, and certainly there was illiquid circumstances in the um, off-the-run sector of the market. So this started to be a concern because then also there's, as people moved or investors moved more and more into cash or instruments that were very, very close to cash products, usually the short end of the treasury curve, they started to move out of the longer end of the treasury curve, and that became even more illiquid. So this started to build on itself, and we'll talk in a little bit about um, some of the policy responses that the Fed and the Treasury implemented that helped this. But at this time, these were the first sort of the canaries in the coal mine in showing that they were going to be problems, particularly in the fixed income space. And then you looked at it, it started to spread in throughout the corporate security space, the agency MBS space um, had some dislocations and some illiquidity, some illiquid products. And then as well, one area I do want to focus on a little bit, the municipal securities area. And it was across the curve. It was short end um, municipal securities, longer dated municipal securities, all different credit credit types. And that became some concern. And that started building on itself. So I think when you look at you know, the, the, the history over the course of, say, the mid two weeks in March, you saw more and more developing stresses, particularly illiquid conditions um, in all the fixed income markets. And that 
and, and that was when the Fed in coordination with the Treasury first stepped in uh, to get credit flowing to households and businesses. Yeah, that's right, Ken. It's hard to believe, to Rob's point, that it's only been a month. Um, you know, back on March 3rd, there was an additional rate cut by the FOMC, and obviously that statement of coordination across all central banks reassuring that there would be liquidity in the markets. Uh, the Fed actually then did some activity around the discount window. They lowered the rate uh, to 25 basis points, which is actually lower than where it was during the crisis. They also put out a statement in order to encourage people to use the discount window um, in during this period of time and not from the perspective that it is the quote unquote borrower, borrower or the um, lender of last resort, but rather, and they've been working on this for a while, is to try to eliminate this stigma um, that going to the discount window is a bad thing, but rather the Fed is there to be able to bolster liquidity in times um, when there's broad market um, concern. Uh, and they encouraged all the large banks to actually access that, um, that window. Um, they also put out a statement talking about utilization of intraday credit um, and to uh, try to, again, uh, quell some of the consternation banks have about in, um, running a bit of a deficit um, on interday credit. They also moved the reserve requirements to zero. They also put out a statement talking to organizations saying that they encourage them to make use of their um, management buffers and liquidity buffers, both on the capital and on liquidity uh, parts of their balance sheet. I think the other thing that they learned from the previous crisis is they immediately uh, instituted the central bank swap lines. They did it with the G7 first and they expanded it to include um, a larger uh, group of organ a larger group of central banks. And then even noting that there might've been pockets of the liquidity across the border globe, they turned around and instituted a um, repo facility that, it, it, permits the pushing of dollars into the global economy. So all of those things um, really were pretty quick um, as well as pretty helpful to deal with liquidity issues. The other thing um, that I really think is very different from the initial playbook uh, that they used in 2008 is along with the U.S. Treasury who is providing um, uh, a backstop to the SPV, they set up the primary uh, corporate credit facility and the secondary market corporate uh, credit facility, both of which is kind of novel um, from the Fed's perspective and is will hopefully be able to deliver liquidity to those parts of the larger borrowing market um, that need some temporary financing while markets are either nervous or where people are still trying to get, you know, past the the hump of COVID nineteen. Yeah, it's it is it is very interesting because you see a situation in particularly in the U.S. with the largest with the largest markets, and in particular the role that the credit and equity markets play in, in funding the real economy. That is, the real economy is is effectively shifted, you know, downshifted, you know, into first gear, you know, from fourth gear. Uh, uh, and what the impact is on economic activity and then subsequently on the funding markets, the importance of, of making sure that those markets are operating and, and the capital and credit is flowing through those markets. And so over the next two weeks, 
The Fed, uh, again, with the backstops, in, in many cases from the Treasury, announced more than a dozen different actions to inject liquidity into the marketplace and support the economy, including, uh, as Corey, as you mentioned, you know, that now near, near zero interest rates and valuable forward guidance. Rob, maybe you can start in outlining some of those programs as well, followed up by Corey. Sure. Thanks, Ken. Um, and again, taking a bit of a historical approach to this, we start back with the um, initial, as I discussed earlier, the initial dislocation in the repo market and concerns there. Um, the Fed very quickly, once the, these stresses um, started to manifest themselves, because remember, the Fed is looking, their policy rate is the Fed funds rate. And the any dis dislocations in the short-term funding market, aka the repo market, can cause or make that um, target, their target for the Fed funds rate, harder to consistently hit. So they're concerned about keeping the repo market operating for their policy reasons, but also for the economy generally to make sure credit continues to flow through. So they created a backstop for primary dealers to access at the Fed to engage in repo transactions so they could get the primary dealers in that case get cash from the Fed. And initially what they, they did was they instituted a series of overnight operations as well as term two-week operations. Those caps got raised and so essentially now the Fed is in a position to really make sure that the repo market continues to operate smoothly. Similarly, what happened in the treasury market, the Fed started to buy treasury securities, announced they were buying treasury securities up to 500 billion in treasuries and up to 200 billion in um, agency MBS. That was the initial call. There continued, even after that was instituted and that buying had started, there continued to be some illiquid stresses in those markets. And the Fed essentially took those caps off and said very clearly that we stand in a position to make sure that the treasury market continues to operate, continues to operate with liquidity and with efficiency. And so that has continued and they continue to, to buy in treasury securities daily up till today. Now, and I think Corey mentioned some of this early on, they, they went back to the playbook from 2008 and have revised a number of programs to get liquidity into the, the spaces that we discussed earlier, and particularly across the, in the fixed income space. They've re-upped the primary dealer credit facility. This is a primary dealer facility whereby um, primary dealers can put certain enumerated securities, and it's a fairly broad list to the Fed to get dollar liquidity. They relaunched the term asset-backed securities loan facility. This was a way of the Fed supporting lending to households and businesses by lending to holders of asset-backed securities that are usually collateralized by um, new loans. They've also relaunched the Money Market Mutual Fund Liquidity Facility, MMLF. Um, this was also from the crisis, and it backstops the holdings of certain money market funds. And then finally, an, another area which I didn't mention earlier, but was significantly stressed was the commercial paper market. This is another very important short-term funding market for both financial firms and non-financial firms, and it essentially froze. People were not able, or companies were not able to access financing in the short-term commercial paper market. So the Fed 
announced, and again, this is taken from the playbook in 2008, the CPFF, the Commercial Paper Funding Facility, and essentially the Fed will be buying commercial paper directly from issuers up to three months, and then they'll let it roll off. So this will be an important, once this fund gets up and running, some of these programs, particularly the CPFF, which is due to start, I think, April 14th, are, are not up and running yet. But once they do get up and running, they'll be providing, you know, important liquidity to these markets. Yeah, I did maybe just to add a little context. I mean, what the what the government was uh, was dealing with in, in the, when you think about where the first quarter ended, U.S. equities recorded their worst performance, you know, since the financial crisis. The S&P closed down 21%, the Dow Jones 24%, the NASDAQ 15%, and, and the Russell 31%. And the CBOE VIX, you know, jumped more than threefold and peaked actually at one point more than fivefold. In addition, throughout this time, as Rob was talking about, the CP market froze up. And as mentioned earlier, in the fixed income space, tremendous stress uh, at first in the treasury market, but also in, in, in the MBS, CMBS, Muni, and the corporate markets, and particularly seeing spreads blown out. When you look at, at, at in the Muni market, you know, where spreads flew out 200 bips in the long end, and and I believe in at one point in the in the high yield market, fourfold increase. So uh, a tremendous stress. Some of that has come back, right, Rob? But in response to the programs that have been announced. Yeah, exactly. And I I think particularly in the areas that have been targeted by the programs, and even in the areas where the the programs have not been stood up and are not fully functional yet. And I particularly would cite to the the corporate programs that uh, Corey mentioned before, the corporate securities programs. But I think you can largely say that the treasury market is behaving in a, a, a more characteristic way. I think the, the liquidity that's provided both to the repo market, which supports the treasury market, and the, the buying of the treasury securities has, has really significantly brought spreads in. Um, I would say there may be some pockets in the, say, off-the-run sector that may be a little less liquid than they traditionally have been. But generally, the message is, has been this has improved and stabilized the situation in the treasury market. I think with respect to corporates, corporates are looking a little better than they were probably in mid-March. I think there's an announcement effect to the Fed announcing that they were going to be in the business of buying the corporates. I, I, that, as I said, that program hasn't been stood up yet. But, you know, I think that market still would need some of that support to, you know, keep its liquid conditions. Now, too, the in a couple areas within the uh, MBS, in the securitization space, there continue to be some stresses. I think there is some improvement, but there's some products that I think people would like to see targeted. The muni market, I think, is a couple of the programs that were announced targeted the short end of the muni um, market. I think that's the liquidity conditions there have improved significantly. I think the longer end, while they're uh, some of the spreads have come in a little bit. Um, I think there's still some stresses there, and we're waiting to see the Fed stand up its muni program to provide support and liquidity to the muni market. Now, with respect to equities, and, and Ken kind of gave you some metrics around, you know, when I think that's always one of the headlines, certainly, around what the equity markets have been doing in terms of numbers and falls and drops. Um, but one thing to, to cite to, I mean, those markets, notwithstanding that the volumes have increased significantly, I think they continue to um, function smoothly and they can function smoothly from, you know, BCP locations. Obviously, the floor of the stock exchange is closed. They've moved to full, you know, 
uh, BCP arrangements, and I think they continue to, to support, you know, the secondary market activity and equities. Um, I think we'll like to see how they support IPOs going forward if this lasts much longer. Um, but I think that's a, a to be determined. That's a good point. There have been certainly some stresses in the equities and options market, but given all the volume, they've run run well, particularly with people working, you know, from home or, or remote sites, split shifts, and you know, firms report to us, you know, that you know they have 80, 90 percent people working remotely or working from home. Uh, and, you know, again, there haven't been too many IPOs. There certainly have been some high-grade corporate bond issuance, some convertible bond deals that have been done, uh, very little in the muni market uh, comparatively. But it is, a test, it is a testament to the market structure in the U.S. that it still has been able to operate through this. I want to switch over to uh, congressional action, and in particular, the most recent uh, CARES Act, a $2 trillion fiscal stimulus package uh, adopted by uh, you know, Congress and the Trump administration. It's uh, aimed to help individuals, small businesses, as well as larger businesses uh, impacted by the coronavirus or COVID-19. In particular, uh, some of the provisions related to municipals and corporate bond markets uh, as well. As mentioned in an earlier podcast, this is the uh, this is the third uh, stimulus uh, package uh, by Congress. Uh, Corey, how would you describe all of these? Yeah, uh, certainly I think the U.S.'s COVID-19 financial stability agenda is comprehensive. Um, the sheer size of it is, is impressive. And in fact, uh, Treasury Secretary, Secretary Mnuchin calls it a massive liquidity program. As you guys know, the, the core of this really is the, the PPP, which is the Paycheck Protection Program uh, that was rolled out or began its rollout last Friday. We are still waiting to see some more of the details that would better articulate how Main Street, the Main Street program would be uh, stood up, as well as uh, the mid-sized uh, lending program. So all three of those, if you think about, and you pair that with what's going on in the, um, as Rob mentioned, the primary and secondary corporate credit facilities, this is a pretty comprehensive approach. I think one of the things that, you know, the Fed obviously partners with the Treasury as being sort of the arm of execution for many of these facilities. Um, obviously, they're using Treasuries, backstops, et cetera. I think one of the issues is that most of the time when the Fed is actually trying to lay out or push these programs out to the street, they rely on the banks in order to intermediate those programs. And, I, I, you know, well, the banks have been clearly um, uh, very positive about partnering uh, with the Fed and the U.S. government to lay out what I believe they also believe is a comprehensive and important part of the U.S.'s response to COVID-19. I think there are, given the size of the program, I think there are some concerns. And certainly from our perspective, I think there are some concerns about the ability of firms, of the banking industry to intermediate programs of such such size. At this point, the banking industry is in great shape. It's well capitalized. Um, a lot of positives going into this crisis. The thing where I, I feel there's going to be some concern at, at some point, if we definitely draw down the full amount of these programs, is at the lever from a leverage perspective. You probably remember uh, the U.S. has um, a full complement of uh, capital rules 
uh, one small subset of that. There's risk-based capital rules, which align capital based on the riskiness of an asset, where are, there's also, or it's complemented by a series of leverage ratios, which are actually risk agnostic and really just do a you know capital over average assets. So when I'm thinking about where constraints may be, it's really in terms of the supplemental leverage ratio, the enhanced supplemental leverage ratio, and then finally the tier one leverage ratio. I think the agencies themselves recognize this uh, just a week or two ago, probably two weeks ago, the Fed actually put out an, uh, I think, a really important acknowledgement uh, of sort of what I'm talking about here, which is this capacity constraint where they amended for on a very temporarily ba a temporary basis, the supplemental leverage ratio at the holding company level, which would exclude Federal Reserve deposits and treasuries on deposit of the Federal Reserve. It removed that from the denominator of the supplemental leverage ratio. So this allowed some additional capacity for um, uh, holding companies to support, for example, their primary broker dealers, et cetera. I think one of the things, especially as we move into this more of a lending program, a lot of that is going to be booked in the bank side of the, the legal entity. If you think about the subsidiary at the bank subsidiary, and once you um, start booking there, they're going to be subject to leverage ratio constraints. I think that the other thing that's important to note is, as many of you guys would know, um, is that capital ratios apply both at the holding company and at the bank level. So, um, you know, I think there might be more to follow uh, potentially as they roll off these programs uh, with regards to how this will all play out um, from a capacity perspective. So the, you know, the Fed, you know, as noted, uh, has, uh, you know, has really uh, put out, as I think Corey's, as you said, quite impressive uh, uh, package along with the treasury to support the economy. Uh, the programs are, are historic, even in comparison to uh, going back to the 2008 uh, financial uh, crisis. Um, but I think now we're seeing them roll them out quite deliberately, you know, seeking to get market feedback and expand where they think they'll make the most difference. Rob, what's your take on, on, on how these are coming out? Yeah, I do want to just reiterate both your comment and Corey's that these are comprehensive and truly, ex truly extraordinary. I mean, the size of these programs is enormous. I think, you know, our members and, you know, you got to give credit to the Fed for at least getting them out there and getting them announced quickly. Um, I think that helped calm some of the situations in the market. But right now, we're, you know, we're focused on, you know, the programs themselves. And I know Corey's going to give a little detail on that, but providing feedback to the Fed um, and to the Treasury on where those programs could be improved. I, I think the Fed certainly has let it be known that they're looking for input um, input specifically on where the gaps are, where the next piece of this puzzle, where did they miss, um, you know, where did they obviously miss, where did they, you know, subtly miss, and I think that input's important, and I give them credit for, you know, thinking about it and thinking about perhaps expanding these programs, for example, in the TALF, whether or not they should be taking um, securities from the secondary market. I think these are questions that, you know, we and other market participants are raising, and certainly the Fed is listening to those comments. 
Yeah, yeah, Rob, I think it's really difficult in a very short period of time. They're really they're trying to stand up programs, many of which they have zero um, previous experience with them. And I give them a lot of credit for actually working that quickly to get them together, but also to, I mean, their initial FAQs, you know, is their first attempt. And they've been very open about, look, you tell us what is the right way, for example, to engage with the marketplace when I do this types of transactions. This is kind of the, you know, minutia of the market that unless every day you're a fixed income trader, you're not going to know necessarily how this all works. You don't read about it in a book. You actually, you know, tend to know it more because you do it. Um, so to that end, we've been working with our members um, on sort of two, uh, two work streams. One is to really take a look at all the work, um, all the term sheets that have been offered, as well as sort of anticipating what we believe are gonna be in term sheets and give the Fed a number of um, questions, clarifying questions that will help them to think about what kind of FAQs they should be putting out and how potentially, um, or why potentially those clarifying questions would be important in terms of standing up uh, those facilities. On the sort of second work stream, that's more after um, really having a good understanding of what the program and an intent is, we're making recommendations that we believe would be helpful to make sure the liquidity really gets to the dislocated parts of the market. So our members have been great helping to provide that type of information. And um, it looks like, you know, we've already shared our clarifications, but are welcoming any kind of follow-up calls with the Federal Reserve or the Treasury, the local reserve banks that are also implementing on a day-to-day -day these programs. And uh, we certainly would be looking to have the same kind of conversations regarding recommendations, because we want to make sure the facilities and the programs uh, meet their goal of effectiveness, because, you know, I, we look at it this way, it, you know, both the market and the government, we're all in this together kind of thing to, to get the financial stability agenda rolled out and implemented in a way that reduces the impact to uh, the U.S. And, and Rob, there are other areas where we've been engaging our regulators like the SEC, CFTC, IRS, and others with respect to, you know, technical issues uh, related to market operations and compliance. Is that right? Yes, we've had, and you can see we have a, a letter um, to the SEC on SEC-related issues on our, our website, you can see. But you know, we the focus there is on, you know, what I guess we'd characterize as nuts and bolts issues of the market that have to do with operations, settlement, infrastructure, and deadlines. Um, you know, things that have become very, very hard to do in this work from home BCP environment. And, you know, by way of an example, and you don't know if you think of this, but we still have, to some degree, limited physical securities. Um, how are those going to be handled in an environment where 95% of people are working from home? There may be deadlines associated with delivery of those. How can those be eased, if at all, again, on a temporary basis, this will be a temporary basis just while we're in this situation where, as I said, 90 plus percent of people may be working from home in the industry. So it's those kinds of things, deadlines, wet signatures, um, you know, reporting requirement deadlines, things like that. Again, looking at it as, you know, this is a temporary situation. It's not going to be around for 
hopefully very long. But in the interim, you know, firms want to do their best to comply. And I think the regulators, I will give them credit, certainly the, the SEC, the staff at the SEC, the CFTC, FINRA has certainly been willing to engage in a pretty good dialogue with us and our members around, um, you know, what are the pressure points and where can we be helpful? Yeah, this has uh, become uh, job one or our number one priority at SIPMA, working with our members, our board of directors, in terms of how uh, we are engaging with our regulators uh, and market participants uh, to continue uh, keeping markets operational, efficient, uh, and working through the COVID-19 issue until we get to the, to the other end of it. Uh, Corey and Rob, I want to thank you all for uh, participating with us today. And I would, uh, I would remind our listeners to go to sifma.org slash BCP to see all that we're doing on COVID-19. Uh, and please don't hesitate to reach out to us as well on any issues related to this or any other markets issues that are part of SIFMA's mandate. And thank you for listening. Things like that. Again, looking at it as, you know, this is a temporary situation. It's not going to be around for hopefully very long. But in the interim, you know, firms want to do their best to comply. And I think the regulators, I will give them credit, certainly the, the SEC, the staff at the SEC, the CFTC, FINRA has certainly been willing to engage in a pretty good dialogue with us and our members around, um, you know, what are the pressure points and where can we be helpful? Yeah, this has uh, become uh, job one or our number one priority at SIFMA, working with our members, our board of directors, in terms of how uh, we are engaging with our regulators uh, and market participants uh, to continue uh, keeping markets operational, efficient, uh, and working through the COVID-19 issue until we get to the, to the other end of it. Uh, Corey and Rob, I want to thank you all for uh, participating with us today. And I would, uh, I would remind our listeners to go to sifma.org slash BCP to see all that we're doing on COVID-19. Uh, and please don't hesitate to reach out to us as well on any issues related to this or any other markets issues that are part of SIFMA's mandate. And thank you for listening.